0: So I know this week we're wrapping up this sermon series on humility, and we've been talking about humility as valuing ourselves as equal with others, and we've been considering it in the context of understanding our human limits. And so this morning we're going to talk about something that doesn't often get preached about, I think, from the pulpit, and that's how to have a humble posture toward those of other faith traditions. So there are lots of different ways that Christians think about how we relate to other religions, and all of them are considered orthodox within the broader tradition i think the bottom line is that we won't really know anything with certainty until whatever comes after this present age and so for me this is very much a third way issue the third way is like a shorthand that we use in our church to talk about things that are considered disputable matters meaning that even within our church community here there are probably multiple ways of approaching this topic and that's completely okay but the approach that i'm going to offer falls somewhere in the realm of what some scholars call the mutuality model And I'm gonna talk about it in the context of how followers of Jesus might think about posturing ourselves toward others in a spirit of humility. And so I wanna start out this morning by just offering three Jesus-shaped postures toward other people. And the first one is that of being non-rivalrous. You know, we've done a lot of preaching on rivalry and on scapegoating and how Jesus came to end both of those. And so I'm not going to go into a lot of theology here But suffice to say, the story of Jesus reveals that we follow a completely non-rivalrous God. That the picture we have of God is three in one, a trinity, father, son, spirit. I sometimes like it when people use the terms um, source, wellspring, and living water. And that there's no hierarchy within that trinity. It's equal, it's relational, and it's non-rivalrous. And we understand the Bible to reveal that God doesn't compete with either humans or with nature. Philippians 2, five to eight says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made into human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we're told that Jesus didn't even use his God nature to one-up humans. But he emptied himself to become equal in order to display God's love for all of humanity. And so I propose that the path that we tread, if we're imitating Jesus, it leads us to behave as if we also are non-rivalrous. And that vying for power and for respectability and for standing really loses its appeal in the reflection of Christ on the cross. And I think it follows in that Christianity should take a non-competitive posture in its relations with, or relationships with other belief systems. You know, a few years back when I lived in China, I came home to the Midwest for a couple of months to spend the holidays with my family, and I missed being in Asia. And so I found a Tibetan Buddhist temple to go and visit down in Indianapolis. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a funny thing. If you look up like Tibetan Buddhist temple in Indy, like it, it, you, you find one And when you go to it, it's actually located in a sort of work, it's a house in a working class neighborhood that was just down the street from my uncle's house. And they've just converted this little house into a worship space. And so I went inside and I chatted with a few people and I was waiting for the meditation hour to begin. And I also spoke with the monk who was leading it, who was from Tibet. And I let him know that I'm Christian and that I was studying Amdo Tibetan language out in Qinghai and that I wanted to join them in prayer. And so he welcomed me with a large smile and a you know a nice cup of tea like a good Tibetan does. And it turns out he was born in a town that wasn't that far from where I was living and studying, so we knew some of the same places and were chatting. And as we went in and we sat on these pillows, you know, in long rows on the floor, the monk led us in prayer. And as he guided us through, he specifically made space for me as a Christian. And he would say things like, "Okay, now we're going to meditate on compassion." but you can meditate on anything that you want. If Jesus is meaningful to you, you can meditate on Jesus. You know, as he kind of looks at me and smiles. And so I meditated on Jesus, which is what I probably would have done anyway just for my own nourishment. And as I thought back on it, I thought, you know, that monk really treated me the way that I would want to be treated. You know, he treated somebody from another faith background in a way that was respectful, that honored me. It was welcoming me with hospitality and a welcome to be fully me without like having a secret agenda to try and secretly make me a Buddhist. And I thought, you know, I really aspire to treat people from other traditions in the same way. I want to love people in that same spirit that I was accepted in that space. Because after all, we are called to love our neighbors as we love ourselves and to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And I think that maintaining a non-rivalrous posture toward others, it doesn't mean that we turn into like wishy-washy people who lack conviction. You know, I'm a full-fledged Jesus lover, but we bear witness to that which we believe. But we also recognize that it's not our job either to judge or to change others. And that I can have full confidence in Jesus as a path to life without the kind of certainty it leads me to try and dominate or conquer another like I don't have any need to do either one of those things you know when Jesus became a human he expressly did not dominate or conquer us humans but rather he witnessed to a thoroughly good God through his embodied sacrificial love and he showed us how to go and to do likewise and so in that way I think that the golden rule really offers us sort of the elixir of life do unto others as you would have them do unto you A second Jesus-shaped posture toward people of other faiths is one of non-judgment. You know, there was a young man who was attending a a church membership class some years ago. And he asked me, um, it's nobody who attends here, so. But he said, do you think my Hindu grandma in India is going to hell? Because I don't know if I can come to this church if that's what you think. Because she is the most loving, kind, generous person. And I would be so lucky if I could be half as spiritually mature as she And so the person who said this to me, he identifies as a secular Hindu. His wife is a Christian and they were seeking a faith community where they could come together, where they could raise their kids with a spiritual framework. And I think this is a scenario that plays out in churches all over the world as people wed spouses from other faith traditions. I can name several of you here, even in this room, who may not identify as Christian while your significant other does. So I think this is a very pertinent question that this young man asked. And the Bible passage that came to my mind that I shared with him is from 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Like the one that sprang to my mind is, "Uh, "'Dear friends, let us love one another, "'for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God. "'He who loveth not doesn't know God, for God is love. "'Let us love one another, because God is love. "'Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, "'and whoever does not love does not know God.'" And I said, well, you know, everyone who loves seems to be inclusive of your grandma, but in the end, I'm not the judge of anyone's soul. I've never met her, and I think God alone, from from a Christian standpoint, God alone is the only one who could judge. You know, in Scripture, our job is to bear witness to love, and it's Jesus' job to judge. In John 5, Jesus says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but um, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Yeah, I've been doing some reading as Ken and I are finishing up um, the book. I think the last chapter in the book is called Jesus Among the World Religions. And because I've lived in some different places and taken some classes on it, I thought, okay, I'll take a stab. So I was reading a book called um, Buddhists Talk About Jesus, Christians Talk About the Buddha. And it's what it sounds like. It's a series of essays of Buddhists who write essays about Jesus and a series of Christians who write essays about the Buddha. And so there's a professor, I think she's at the University of Wisconsin, Rita Gross. Um, she's talking about Jesus as a practicing Buddhist. And she expresses something um, that was a little bit similar to what that young man was expressing to me that one day. She said that she fears talking with Christians because of our claims about Jesus being a higher indispensable truth. And so she says she feels like Christians prejudge her religious path as inferior, and not only inferior, but really as a path that leads to like hell and her destruction. However, one understands that concept of hell. And I think that this fear really presents a tangible hurdle for interfaith dialogue to which we really need to be sympathetic. That we can't effectively talk with someone of another faith that the person intuits that we actually think that their position is ignorant or less than. I know I don't want to talk to somebody who automatically assumes that I'm wrong, unintelligent, less spiritually evolved, maybe going to be destroyed in the afterlife because of my beliefs. And this is why I think it just requires genuine humility. We've been talking about getting back to that Christian um, value of humility. And that when we find our genesis in humility, we we move from speaking out of a place of certainty to speaking from a place of confidence. If we can understand the difference of that. The language of the Bible is that of confidence, not certainty. Hebrews 3.6 says, But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, And we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Hebrews 11.1, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I'll take confidence, I'll take assurance. But certainty is a whole different subject. We talked a little last week about how one of our human limits is we can't know everything. You know, Christians I think can be fully Christian, embracing the Jesus path completely and confidently while acknowledging that we humans can never be certain about anything. And that as Christians, we can accept that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we can even be declarative about that belief, but it's really only under the auspices of but I could be wrong. And that but I could be wrong must really permeate our very being because we could be wrong. And we likely are about at least a portion of what we hold to be true. The Apostle Paul warns us that we see through a glass darkly and the person we're talking to could be right. They could be even more right than we are. You know, Paul Knitter is a very fine interfaith scholar and he describes this dynamic as tending to a relationship of mutuality, that we have a relationship of respect, of mutual respect with other faiths. Because no one wants to feel judged. And really, in theory, that should be an easy barrier to overcome within the Christian framework because the heart of our faith, I mean, from the very first part of our origin story is that we're to eat from the tree of life, which we Christians then interpret to be Jesus later on. But we eat from the tree of life and not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is judgment. But that's so very hard to do as humans. Like, we are so tempted to judge. And Jesus understood this relationship-killing aspect of judges. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says in Matthew 7, 1 to 5, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you don't pay any attention to that big old plank in your own? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time that big old plank is sitting there in yours? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to help remove that speck from your brother's eye. So we're non-rivalrous and non-judgmental. And third, we take a non-heroic posture. So I know Ken preached an entire sermon a couple of weeks ago about not thinking about ourselves as heroes. But I think it needs really underlining in our culture, our American culture, and especially as we relate to people of other faiths, that it's not our job to save others, or to prove ourselves with big heroic feats of like saving a nation or doing whatever. In our tradition, the task of saving others belongs to Jesus alone. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. (coughs) Roberta Bondi, whose book we've been using sort of loosely on our sermon topic of humility, she describes how when we become aware of our dependency on God and others, we start to grow to understand more that we're not knights in shining armor, either for non-Christians or for the oppressed, but rather we, we embrace our common humanity with others and then we make ourselves available for God to work through us for the sake of others. And that it's really an attitude of the heart that says, it's not I, but God. Right, it's not I, but God. And the Apostle Paul, he preached this Um, I think he reached this state when he wrote this in 1 Corinthians. He said, but I'm the least of the apostles and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. So the idea is that we, all of us, stand before God and we participate in enacting God's good realm by grace. And I think that grace is probably the most beautiful lasting revelation of the 16th century reformation. The idea that there's nothing that we can do to earn favor with God but we can accept his lavish love and follow this non-rivalrous path of Jesus as best that we can and that we bear witness to that. When I lived in, in China, a friend and I had an opportunity to go out and to visit a Tibetan Buddhist monastery and it was at the invitation of a Buddhist nun who had met my friend on a visit to our city. And so, approximately 40 nuns live out at this monastery out in the mountains. And then there's a monk that resides in sort of a separate building that's up the hill from the monastery. And he's considered a living Buddha. And he's charged with overseeing the women and with their spiritual education. And so, when we first arrived, actually, when we got there, um, we, we came across a Chinese official. And we noticed he followed us all the way to the monastery. And he came after us um, to register our stay, because you always have to register with the police. And then just to uh, kind of inquire as to why we were in that part of the country. And the chief governmental concern in China is with foreign journalists, usually, who are doing undercover work on the Chinese occupation of Tibet. So we're not journalists, but we also realized that our presence might be controversial, because I, I was there working as, um, as a missionary. And so in that light, we decided we wanted to be transparent with our hosts because we didn't want to mislead them or put them in any sort of an awkward position with their local government offices. And so my friend and I, we were just talking about how we might approach that monk to discuss our visit, because both of us were legitimate language students, and so we thought, well, you know, we could just talk about how we're language students learning more language, which we did. I had a tutor out there, and culture, and all of that. But I thought, you know, what I'm really here for is I'm interested in holding spiritual conversations with the nuns, and I want to talk about Jesus, but I also want to watch and listen and genuinely learn from the women and how they think of the world. I thought, like, how many times do you get that opportunity to go and ask questions about someone else's faith that up close, especially in a monastic tradition, and why do you choose to live in this fashion, and how does your spirituality enrich you, and all of those wonderful questions. And so my friend and I, we walked up to the top of the mountain where you could kind of oversee the monastery, which was about halfway down, and we just prayed, and we asked Jesus, what should we do? And what we felt in our hearts was an answer we felt like from the Holy Spirit, and you might laugh, I don't know, we felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, speak friend and enter. <laughs> right? Lord of the Rings, a little, a little geek moment. You know, it's a moment when the fellowship's trying to get into the mountains of Moria, and they discover an ancient door that says, speak friend and enter, and they eventually realize they have to speak the elven word for friend to open the door. But for us, it just kind of like, it was just in that way that the Holy Spirit sort of drops a little guidance to you. And what we felt like was that that meant that we needed to treat the monk and the many nuns with mutual respect and love as genuine friends, not as somebody we're trying to come and like conquer or dominate. We felt like we had instructions from Jesus to just regard them in a true mutuality. And so in that vein, we wanted to be completely truthful about who we were, why we were there, and invite really shared discussions about spirituality and about the world around us. And so that evening the monk came by and he invited us to come and have tea in his quarters and he welcomed us like lavishly with like a nice meal and some tea and so we just started talking openly about faith matters. I think in general I found Buddhists to be very open-hearted with people of different religious traditions and as we started talking, he started sharing a vision that he had of of opening up a different building there at the monastery where the women could learn about other faith traditions. And he was, like, expressing so much gratitude that we were there, and he was just delighted that we could come and dialogue. And then he made a blanket invitation to us. He just said, if you guys want to come back later this summer, like, Come as long as you want. You're welcome here. I'll give you a room. Come and stay with us. You can learn from the nuns. We'll learn from you. And so we were like, yeah, that sounds awesome. So we did do that. And while I was there, I learned, you know, there are really different, um, there are very real differences between Christianity and Buddhism. You know, there's some significantly distinct approaches to life and to spirituality. But there are also some real commonalities on which we can base our dialogue. You know, both traditions offer deep insights into the nature of suffering, although we differ on how we handle it, and both traditions care very deeply about things like compassion and peacemaking. And in that space of true friendship, I think I was able to do things like prophetically speak um, peace to one of these Buddhist women who, as we were talking and I was asking her what motivated her specifically to live a monastic life, she confessed she has a deep fear of dying. And so then that gave me space to be able to say, you know, I believe from a Christian standpoint in this God who is love and this spirit that holds all things together and that we have hope in that. And then conversely, the, the nuns were able to prophetically call me to treat animals better, I think, including insects with greater care and reverence. They were like, you know, they're all living beings like I am. And so I became a vegetarian for five years after returning from China most of you know I ate bacon last spring, so it's kind of all over now, but, <laughs> but, but my conviction is still there. <laughs> Maybe it'll come back. <laughs> I am weak, Lord. <laughs> but these nuns, while I was there, I asked them to give me a Tibetan name. And the name that they gave me was Garmul Ayunganzum, and they'd call me Ayunganzum. And it means white woman in whom there are buried treasures. So I think they called me treasure for short. And that told me, I think what they experienced was that what I brought was valuable and that I received from them treasures that were valuable in return. And it makes me think of the picture in scripture of the baby Jesus as you know, the wise men of the East, the astrologers of the East. They come and they bring their gifts to the baby Jesus, these foreign gifts And I just think, if Jesus accepted foreign gifts, who are we to turn away the offerings of other cultures and people of other faiths? Humility admits that we don't have any way to verify the truth claims of a religion that we don't practice, that that's beyond our ability. 10 years ago this fall, I went to live overseas for four years as a missionary. And even then, I didn't see my job as like, going over to like, disprove somebody else's faith. I thought, you know, I probably know more than most Westerners about, like, Tibetan Buddhism and Islam just because of the spaces where I lived, but I still don't know enough to act as an authority about, like, the whole wide array of thought within those traditions. I think we can only bear witness to the Jesus that we love, and we recognize our limits within that, that we can't save anyone, we can't possibly know everything, and we cannot adequately judge the state of someone else's soul— but we can offer the treasures that we have found as gifts, trusting that if God draws all people to God's self as we believe, then the attractiveness of this God who is love is enough. So I think these three Jesus-shaped postures toward others, they free us up to be curious, to be open-hearted, to be charitable, to be able to learn from others. You know, that God isn't contained in this Christian-shaped box that only those with a particular birthright can open because I was born Christian. But on the contrary, in our tradition, every human being bears the image of God. And so every single human carries some element of the divine and my view of God at work in the world that goes far beyond God at work in Christians or in the Christian church, but that God's spirit has been unleashed into the earth and has been blowing and roaming as she will, and that it's our good pleasure to watch for signs of the spirit in mysterious places. I think one of the best theologians of the Holy Spirit is a Canadian man named Doc, uh, Dr. Clark Pinnock, and he's long championed what he calls a spirit-oriented theology of missions and interfaith relations And I like what he writes here. He says, openness to others does not imply that they've heard God's voice accurately and that they know only truth with no admixture of error. All of us make mistakes in our theologies because God's ways are not coercive and because the truth can be suppressed by unrighteousness. But we should not prejudge such things, he says. Spirit is present everywhere and God's truth may have penetrated any given religion and culture at some point and we should be eager to find out. I've been reading some First uh, First Nations theologians um, who talk about something similar. They explore the idea that Jesus existed as logos among the ancient peoples long before Jesus became a human. So the idea is from John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with life, or the word was with God and the word was God. That word for word is logos in Greek. And so basically what John is saying is that the Word, Jesus, was with God in the beginning somehow mysteriously in this Trinity. And they're like, so if the creative element of the Spirit and of Jesus and of God the Father was there all the way in the beginning, then this Word, Spirit of God, has roamed the earth at will ever since, giving revelation to people at all times and in all places. And that would mean that logos unveiled characteristics of the divine in various people groups who still guard and pass along those stories through art and through rituals and through other means, and that we can access those stories and we can learn from them should we have discerning eyes to see and ears to hear. They talk about how they can see aspects of the revelation of this God as love within their own stories and traditions. Our scriptures allude to humans of different backgrounds operating out of the spirit of love. Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of the sheep pen and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And elsewhere in Mark, teacher, John says to Jesus, we saw somebody driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he's not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say something bad about me. Whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name will certainly not lose their reward. Or the story of Cornelius in the book of Acts. Cornelius is a Roman centurion in the Italian regiment. And Acts 10 describes him. He's not Jewish. He's not part of this Jesus-following aspect of Judaism. Um, In the early church, he's just a Roman centurion, and he's described as devout and God-fearing. And the evidence that they give of him being devout and God-fearing is that he gave generously to those in need, and that he prayed to God regularly. And so Cornelius, who's a man of war, who was part of the oppressing empire, was judged by God to be so faithful that he ended up becoming the conduit for the apostle Peter, Um, To be able to accept Gentiles into the wider family of God. And I thought, you know, that's not who I would have laid my money on God using. But God sees other people differently than humans do. And I thought, well, maybe God needed the oppressed people to know and understand that God's grace extends to even those that we might be tempted to exclude. And the story of Abram, later Abraham, tells us that God speaks to humans outside the context of any religious framework and before Judaism was even really a tradition, certainly before Christianity, that God spoke to Abram, which is consistent with some of my experiences of people who come from all different walks of life. You know, I've talked to people in different backgrounds who have had spiritual experiences that they can't quite name, but it's, it's interesting. Almost any human that you talk to has had some kind of like, hmm, moment in their life if you can get them to, if you can get people to confess it. And I would just offer, could we go so far as to say that anyone who refuses to scapegoat and to sacrifice others for the sake of group peace, anybody who stands up for the outcast, is in fact a follower of this God who is love, regardless of what they call the spirit in which they live. And I suspect that they can. I think I've recognized the spirit in people who don't call it by the same name that I call it, And what I look for is love as the marker for people who walk a similar path to mine. Now, it could seem there that there's a little bit of biblical tension between Jesus' command to go and to make disciples and the belief that people might well find the spirit of love through different paths. You know, if God works inside of Christianity, you know, why go and tell anyone anything? Why go make disciples of Jesus? So I'm just going to briefly offer three reasons, and it's a little longer sermon than we normally have. But the first one is, if the Spirit's at work among all people, it really only serves Christians to go in to learn the perspectives of others, and that buried treasures abound. And I know I continue to find more depth to my own faith in knowing practitioners of other traditions. The second is that there's this great proverb, it says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And I think we grow when we can accept critique from people of other faiths and then we can have influence on others when we're able to effectively give it. But every single one of us makes mistakes in our theology and we should question one another when it seems that our beliefs cause harm. And we should also challenge the parts of other spiritual traditions and the traditions of the empire that don't seem to bear good fruit. Like we should be able to prophetically call out rivalrous sacrificial religion in whatever form that it comes but we do it with a full understanding that Christianity has as much to apologize for as any other tradition. We cannot, however, effectively prophetically challenge another's faith, um, their rivalrous and sacrificial practices if we're not in any sort of relationship with those practitioners or if we don't respect the goodness and the richness that exists in the other parts of their path. You know, when Gandhi said famously, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. You know he really communicated that from a place of having studied our texts, having talked with Christians, having engaged Jesus' nonviolent resistance tactics, perhaps better than any other person in history, up to that point other than Jesus. And so I think we should deferentially accept that kind of feedback, especially as it was a way of him communicating to the West that we were hurting his people. You know, the, the Christian West colonized his country, depleted it economically, enlisted its men for war, and then painted Indians as weak, backward, effeminate people, and effeminate being used pejoratively, unfortunately, who needed manly Christian guidance. And I think Gandhi knew the Jesus that Jesus said, I know better than the people who are maybe professing our faith but sitting in judgment over the Indian subcontinent. And so I can hear Gandhi because of his love and his respect for my faith tradition, and I think it works no differently the other way around. So many of us Christians, we wanna armchair critique other religions, especially Islam, if we're being honest, when we've never studied the faith in depth, been in mutual relationships with any adherents, or allowed ourselves permission to respect other ways of finding God. And then last but not least, we go and tell, because I think we genuinely have good news, and that scripture doesn't say go and dominate, It doesn't say go to other nations and conquer, but go and make disciples. And that means equipping people who want to follow the way of Jesus, people who are seeking, that we equip them with ways of seeking justice and belonging for all, of renouncing scapegoating and violence. We equip them with ways of how we love, even unto death. And Jesus tells us that we go and that we spread that message like we're kneading yeast into a big ball of dough. If you've ever kneaded yeast into a dough, you know, it's just slow and it slowly permeates and you massage it in. He doesn't say, go and just like drop this like an atomic bomb. Kneading yeast into bread is a very humble image. I'm going to end with a quote from Henry Nouwen, who was a famous Catholic um, monk. He says, For Jesus, there are no countries to be conquered no ideologies to be imposed, no people to be dominated. There are only children, women, and men to be loved. And so I'd say, I believe we had good news for the world. I still believe in going and making disciples. I hope you also believe we had good news. So with that, we'll move into a time of meditation. We often do two or three minutes of silence or guided meditation. This morning, we're not gonna do the guided meditation. I think what we're gonna do is just sit in silence and invite the Holy Spirit to just be speaking to us in the same. For some of you, you might be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. For other of you, there might be parts of a sermon that we're a little like, huh. So let's just invite the Spirit to be speaking to us in this space. And if you feel like, yeah, I don't need to know anything about that, you can always just sit in thankfulness. It's a good week to remember to be thankful for all that we have. So come, Holy Spirit, in this silence. We worship you. Jesus, we live in a culture that tells stories about picking ourselves up by our bootstraps and we can be anything that we want to be. It tells us these myths about sort of human supremacy. And we confess that we have human limits, that we can't save others, we can't judge others adequately, we can't possibly know everything. And I ask that you would help us to recover this characteristic um, humility That so permeated your ministry as well as your followers. And I also ask, Lord, that you would give us um, a posture of being able to speak prophetically when any kind of faith tradition, including and most especially our own, is harming others through rivalrous sacrificial um, actions. Lord, I ask that you would, by your Spirit, fill our hearts with love, that this Jesus who we follow humbly. Um, is attractive to others, Lord, that they will see who you really are and not maybe this conquering, dominating picture that's, that's been kind of painted within our culture. Lord, may, may um, the Christian faith in the U.S. recover its humility because that, that would truly be world-changing. Lord, I ask that you would be with us as we move into this this week where many of us are with family and with friends, that you would give us gentleness and peace as we. some of us have family members who um, maybe differ from us politically or spiritually. I ask, Lord, that your love and your grace and your hospitality and your welcome would permeate those relationships um, and that you would help us to grow in love with those who are near to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray amen i forgot to give a special shout out to to the serendipity doodah moms maybe we could give them an extra high these are the moms of lgbtq kids they get online and they talk about how like how it was really special when everybody clapped when we talked about transgender inclusion and so i think they value that so we're glad you're here guys all right